Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Since the 1970s, the number of American adults living single has risen substantially. Far more people are single today than they were in the past. People are waiting longer to get married, and many are choosing not to marry at all. And some are opting for platonic life partners over long-term sexual and romantic partners. So let's talk about singles. I have a two-part show for you this week. In today's episode, we're going to explore the positive side of singlehood. And in the next episode, we're going to explore the negative side. Some of the topics we're going to discuss in today's show include why so many people are choosing to be single, so what are the benefits? We're also going to discuss why older singles tend to be happier than younger singles, when being single is sexually satisfying, as well as how your value set and social network shape the experience of being single. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Yutika Girme, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Simon Fraser University in Canada. Her research focuses on reconciling the complexities associated with singlehood and relationship experiences with the aim of fostering security and well-being. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, JUSTIN20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Yataka, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really excited to speak with you again. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in studying relationship experiences, and in particular, the experiences of singles. Yeah, for me, one of the things that I really got excited about when I was an undergraduate student uh, doing a close relationships course was that relationships can be the absolute best thing for us, but also the absolute worst. And so I was really interested in trying to reconcile those differences. When is it that people have great relationships and what factors when relationships don't go so well? And sort of stemming from that, as I kind of got deeper, I realized, hold on, maybe one of the solutions isn't about fixing bad relationships, but the alternative could actually just be like exiting those relationships and being single. And so that really got me excited about exploring singlehood and kind of in that same light, you know, when do single people thrive and then when do they actually struggle with their singlehood? I love that answer. And it reminds me of something I've said on the show many times before, which is that when I was first studying relationships in grad school, the perspective, the thing we learned about was that you should try and 
save the relationship at all costs because mm-hmm. a long-term relationship is the best kind of relationship. And I think sometimes the best answer is for people to go their own ways and sometimes maybe to be on their own. And Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you on that. Well, thank you for sharing that. So the focus of our first conversation is going to be on the positive side of singlehood, which is a topic that has received surprisingly little research attention. It kind of feels like the field of relationship science has long viewed being a couple and specifically being a monogamous married couple as the ideal relationship state. I mean, again, if I go back to when I was in graduate school, We read paper after paper talking about how married couples are better off than cohabiting couples and people in any relationship are better off than singles. And no one was talking about consensual non-monogamy, except unless it was to say that monogamous people are better off. But all of that has changed in the last several years. And I'm curious for your take on this. So why do you think relationship science has long downplayed the experiences of singles and people in non-traditional relationships? My personal opinion on this is that relationship science is actually a pretty young field. You know, like compared to some of the other sciences that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, relationship science is like 50 years old. You know, and I've heard other senior people in our field talk about this, where when they were trying to get funding, people would see the word love and be like, okay, this is all just like, you know, fluffy science. This is not legit. And people had a hard time trying to convince politicians, government, granting agencies to fund relationship science. And so I think that all of these studies that have historically looked at, you know, the differences between people who are single and people who are often married, but there are like more studies also looking at cohabitation and just generally committed couples. They really wanted to highlight this like well-being gap that people who are in committed long-term relationships tend to, on average, be happier, healthier, live longer. And, you know, I will say I'm guilty of this too. That's like our first sentence when we write our grant applications, you know, when trying to convince people why to fund this research is that it has practical significance. The downside to that is that maybe we kind of set ourselves to go down this path that we were really just focusing on the importance of romantic partnership. And we downplayed the importance of singlehood experiences as well as anything that falls outside of that, right? Even like there's still very little research on our close relationships with family and friends in our area and the important role. These are all really important types of relationships that people have, but we just have focused very closely on on marriage, on committed relationships and uh Anything outside of that just hasn't received as much as attention. Yeah, I think it's so true and has a lot to do with what you can get grant funding for. And I think there's been a tendency to kind of play it safe and not go down the realm of controversial topics. You know, this is the sex and psychology podcast. It's hard to get grant funding for <laughs> sex research. And I think a lot of relationship researchers have kind of shied away from even addressing the topic of sexuality just because that takes it to a different level. And we know historically federal grants for relationship research. Sometimes you'll have people on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives arguing that these should be defunded because this isn't real science or taxpayer dollars shouldn't go to studying dirty or immoral things. And there has been this tendency to kind of do something that maybe feels more 
comforting to the granting agencies. Yeah, like, yeah, love, you know. But I also will say that I think the other um, maybe concern or worry is that if we start promoting, like if I start talking about how awesome singlehood is, people's concern might be like, okay, well, does that mean that you're saying that relationships are, like romantic relationships are bad? And I don't think it has to be this or that. And in fact, that's something that I'm really trying to push for, that we need to move away from this, like, is it marriage versus singlehood? Is it romantic relationships versus singlehood? Is it, there's so many different contrasts. I could sit here and lift, talk about all the different types of marginalized identities that have been left out of these conversations. And instead of this and that, you know, it should be like, well, these are all valid experiences that people are having and just by wanting to examine them all doesn't make one more important or contradict what you're trying to say about another experience. I don't know. It sounds like you're pushing the single agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully my husband doesn't get wind of that too much. (laughs) All right. So, you know, I'm in agreement with you about, you know, some of these things have been tough to study. I don't think it's necessarily because relationship researchers haven't wanted to study singles, Mm -hmm. but there have been lots of other considerations there. So let's talk about when singlehood is awesome. You recently published a review paper that I love that looks at the factors associated with singles' health and happiness. And you divided those factors into three classes. You talk about the features of the individual, the characteristics of the person's previous relationship experiences, and features of culture and society. So let's take a look at some of these characteristics. Now, let's start first with whether people choose to be single or not. There's a big difference between voluntarily being single versus wanting a relationship and not being able to find one. So what are some of the reasons why people might choose to be single? What do they see as the benefits of singlehood? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot that singlehood has to offer. Some of it is just the lack of a relationship, like a romantic relationship. And I think that's fine. There are a lot of people who... Maybe they have no desire for that level of highly interdependent, potentially sexually intimate relationship with people. So I think there are people who choose to be single and it's really that they're just uninterested, that they're just uninterested in wanting a romantic relationship. I think there are also circumstances in which people may think, I may eventually want to be in a committed relationship down the road. But right now, I'm traveling a lot for work. I am about to start grad school. I don't know where I'm going to be for the next 10 years. You know, like there might be circumstances like that too, where people are like, I think I'm good. I also think that there are people who are doing some personal self-reflection and personal growth. Maybe that's coming out of a bad relationship and they want time for themselves. Maybe that's just someone who says, I just want to focus on me right now. I'm young. I'm finding out who I am. I'm exploring my identity. I'm exploring my sexuality. Like, I don't really want to be tied down to like, you know, one romantic partner. I know there's, of course, the CNM side, but I think all of these are like valid reasons. Sometimes people like will those reasons may not ever change, right? And they'll be single for their entire life. We know that that makes up about 10% of the adult population, roughly. And then some people will eventually find that, okay, I'm ready for a relationship now. And then that becomes an important priority later in life. 
Yeah, so it can be this sort of fluid and flexible status. You know, it can be about meeting your needs at this moment and those needs might change. And that's a theme we've talked about on this show many times is that mm. what we want and need at one point in time might be very, very different from some point later down the road. Absolutely. And, you know, like, especially in the context of singlehood, I think it's important to clarify that when we talk about singlehood, we're not just talking about like young, never married, not in a relationship singles. We're also talking about people who are entering into singlehood later in life. Maybe they're going through a separation or a divorce. Maybe they're going through widowhood really early than maybe they would have anticipated to. So there are people who are entering into singlehood later in life as well. Sometimes that is by choice. Sometimes that means getting out of a marriage or a long-term relationship that wasn't healthy and they want time for themselves. So a lot of this absolutely is like an ebb and flow between relationship status and singlehood status. And again, reinforces my point that all of these experiences are really connected. We can't understand relationships without also understanding singlehood and vice versa. Totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up the point about age because... Singlehood might very well be experienced very differently at different points in time. I think a lot of us when we were younger didn't really give ourselves a chance to appreciate singlehood mm -hmm. <laughs> because we felt this pressure like we need to have a date for this event or that event and we need to be in relationships because we feel like we're judged for being single. But then you might get into a long-term relationship, that relationship ends, and then you're like, oh shit, like... <laughs> Being singles is a different thing. And that's, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about that role of age. And I think it's really interesting. You talk about this in your paper, how what we see in the research is that starting around midlife, singles start to become more satisfied with singlehood. So why is that? Why do you think older singles might be more satisfied than younger singles? I think there's perhaps some sense of like security and maturity that comes and confidence that comes with age, right? And I, I don't think that's necessarily specific to singlehood. I think I've seen this happen even with things like people's um, satisfaction with their body. You know, I feel like we're very preoccupied about how we look when we're younger and then you kind of get to a certain age and you're just, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Say whatever you want. <laughs> you, but you kind of get to a certain age and you're like, you know what? Fuck it. This is what I look like and I'm really happy and satisfied with that. And I'm going to work with what I've got. So I feel like singlehood, it may for some people be very similar that you get older and you realize, I don't want to conform. Like I don't, if I really don't want to be in a relationship, then I'm not going to like, you know, let people's comments and, and their pressure about that, like bother me. And instead I'm going to get I'm going to work hard to make singlehood like this really rewarding experience. So I'm going to cultivate friendships. I'm going to travel. I'm going to pick up new hobbies and interests and spend my time doing the things that I love in the way that I want to lead my life. I also think that we also see in the, in the research that there are people who wanted to be in a relationship for whatever reason that didn't happen. And then there's probably like an age in like the 30s where there's like a crisis about that. And then I think they eventually come out the other side thinking, okay, it hasn't happened for me. And maybe if it does, great. Like Kamala Harris, she first got married in her 50s, you know, so she didn't let that stop her. She was out being a badass and I think people kind of get to that with age too. They realize, okay, it hasn't happened for me. Instead of like being concerned about that, let me just 
be happy with the people in my life that are there and let me live that life to the fullest. And then if someone comes along, then great, but I'm not going to like ruminate about that. I'm not going to like worry too much about that anymore. Yeah. Has me thinking about my own life. Like (laughs) early on, I was not fine being single. And I think it was because I wasn't fine with myself, you know, had a lot of anxieties and insecurities. And, you know, being in a relationship was something that was very important for feeling validated. Mm -hmm. And I've been in a very long-term relationship. I'm not saying anything negative about it or that, you know, I'm looking to leave or anything like that. But I feel like if I were single at this stage of life, I'd be okay. Whereas early on in life, I I wouldn't have been because I just have a greater sense of personal self-worth than I did before. So yeah, I think this age piece is super important when we're talking about singles experiences. Now, I think there's this popular assumption that singles are necessarily less sexually satisfied than people in relationships. And some studies have supported this idea by showing group differences in sexual frequency and satisfaction. But that doesn't necessarily mean that singles are inherently unhappy with their sex lives. In fact, many of them are perfectly happy. So when it comes to sex, when are singles most likely to be sexually satisfied? I think it depends on what their desires are. Right. So I think that if you're a single person who has a very low desire for sexual intimacy or sexual activity, being single actually is a great way of just you can avoid that. Like, right. I'm single. I don't have a partner. I don't have anyone pestering me to have sex with me. So I'm like, good. And that is still satisfaction with yeah. sing- with your sex life. And then I think there are single individuals who have a higher sexual desire and they're able to meet that sexual desire. And then they're they're happy because they're able to meet their sexual needs without investing in like a romantic relationship. And so then that works out great. I do think some of that depends a little bit about the person, like whether they're comfortable engaging in casual sex, whether they have access to people. Like sometimes that is just like, you know, getting on a dating app and going out and just meeting someone for a hookup. Maybe that's someone that they know. Maybe that's like a good friend of theirs that they trust and they feel close with, but they both know that this is just friends with benefits. And then I also think it's about the place that you might be living in, right? Like I think that, you know, we live in a North American context. I think that it's safe to say that it's, we're pretty open in our societies about casual sex, But I can imagine that there are countries where this is like punishable. And so I imagine that if you're a single person living in a country where casual sex is not really something people like encourage or do, or if you do get caught with it, it's like really bad consequences, then you may not be satisfied in that situation. Yeah, I think you make so many important points there. One being that not having sex is satisfying to some people, right? Mm -hmm. So sexual satisfaction isn't just about having sex, it can be also about not having the sex that you didn't want to have in the first place. Mm -hmm. Just because you're single doesn't mean you're not sexually active. You might be engaging in casual sex, which we know can take various forms, which we've covered on other episodes of this podcast. And many people derive fulfillment from that, but it's not for everyone. you know. Mm -hmm. So whether you're sexually satisfied and single is going to depend a lot, as you said, on the individual. Now, yet another factor that's important when it comes to having positive experiences with being single is the quality of the platonic relationships that you have in your life. And I've been hearing a lot more lately about this idea of platonic life partners. 
Mm. right? And these are people who commit to each other in much the same way that people in romantic relationships do. There just isn't the romantic and sexual component. It's kind of the Grace and Frankie type of (laughs) important relationship in one's life, right? Where it's that connection between the friends that is what is really valued. So what can you tell us about that? How do friends shape the experience of being single? And why might someone prioritize friendships over romantic relationships? Yeah, I find this fascinating because if you think about the people who are in your life, how long have you known your romantic partner? How long have you known your closest friends? And it's just this really interesting thing. I think it comes back to those biases that we talked about right at the beginning of this podcast episode, right? Like we have just thought and maybe assumed prematurely that romantic relationships are just this really important, unique kind of relationship. And I think, you know, I am a relationship scientist, identify in that way. I'm not saying that it's not, but I also think that there are other important relationships in our life that can probably do exactly the same thing for some people. So having like a best friend who is your companion, who is your like person that you could turn to for everything, would pick you up if you got into a car accident, who would like help you after like a rough financial issue or a chronic health concern. You know, I think these are really important close relationships that we have and it's important to cultivate them. I think often what happens is people get into romantic relationships and they let their friendships kind of fall away yep. to the side. I think we uh, we can most of us can probably say we're guilty of doing this at least on one occasion. But I think if anything like that people learn from studying singlehood science is the importance of friendship why that's so important for single people, but also, you know, paying more attention to that regardless of our relationship status. So if you ever do enter into a relationship or if you are in a long-term relationship, think about your friends as well. Like that's still a really important source of companionship, social support, belonging, intimacy, closeness. And I think part of the reason too why that model can work for people is that with friendships, you're not expected to put everything on one person. Mm-hmm. In a romantic relationship, a monogamous relationship specifically, that person is expected to be your best friend and your passionate lover and to be able to fulfill and meet any and all needs you have. And so, regardless of whether they actually can do that, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So, with friends, you know, you can think of this kind of along the same lines as we think of polyamory, where you have diversified need fulfillment, you know, different friends who are meeting different needs that you have. And they can all add something different to your life without putting all of that expectation on just one person. So you don't have to always call that one friend to drive you to the airport. (laughs) Maybe you have a couple friends you can call upon. Yeah. Now, one other factor you discuss in your paper that's linked to being happier with singlehood is what you call post-materialist values that center around individualism. So tell us a little bit about that. How do individualistic values within a given person or culture shape people's experiences with being single? Yeah. So I think that there are societies that really promote family ideologies and marriage as an ideology. If that is the case, the assumption is that relationships are great, romantic relationships are great, singlehood, not so great. And so if societies, and I think there is a little bit of emerging evidence for this, if they focus more on the individual and the things that individuals can do to promote 
personal growth and happiness and well-being outside of, you know, necessarily hoping that relationships will perform, you know, and function in that way to support those needs, then I think single people are doing better in those societies. I also have a feeling that, and I don't know if there's any empirical evidence for this, so this is just my like personal opinion, but I think in those societies, there's probably systemic structures in place to protect single individuals from a lot of the downfalls of societies that really endorse like family life. So like one example of this is, for example, if you have a medical procedure Often the requirement is that you need a support person who can look after you for a day or two afterwards. In some societies, it's like, okay, well, that person has to be like a spouse or a partner that's living with you. If that's the like procedure in place, just at a policy level, that means that single individuals are denied access to like basic medical procedures, preventative measures, all sorts of things. But if there are societies that are a bit more open-minded about that, then they may say, okay, you still need someone who can, you know, look after you, but that can be like a close friend. It could be a best friend. It could be a sibling, you know, and they're more open to like signing off on that for single individuals. So even at just like the structural level, I think how a society endorses these kind of ideologies about relationships versus singlehood is important. It does have day-to-day implications for single people's well-being. Yeah, so true. So I have one more question for you about this topic, which is whether there's anything else you want us to know about when singlehood can be awesome or when it can be a positive experience, or alternatively, whether there's anything you can do to make singlehood a more positive experience. I think one thing that we haven't covered is people's attachment security. So if you are someone that is very secure, and not just with yourself, but in the way that you think about close others, if you think that other people around you are going to be responsive to your needs, they're reliable, they're available, you're comfortable having, you know, very loving relationships with other people, secure single people are doing really great. That makes sense to me because I think what that facilitates is all of these other things we've talked about, right? That maybe they're more likely to choose singlehood because they're feeling secure in those decisions, right? It's not reflecting anything about, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me that I can't get into a relationship or find someone, you know? They're also more likely to cultivate really good relationships with friends and family, So I think having that attachment security is really important. I think it's like a really good individual difference like measure to kind of highlight when singlehood can be a very positive, thriving experience. And we know from all the work on the relationship science side that attachment security tends to be like a really robust predictor of well-being in relationships. So I think in that same grain, I think if I had to place my money on like anything, I would say, yeah, really cultivating feelings of security. And if you're a single person who recognizes that maybe you have insecure tendencies, then I think singlehood offers people a really awesome opportunity to then focus on themselves and do the work that might be required to kind of like self-reflect. If that involves going to therapy and kind of like unpacking some of your own insecurities, 
and really kind of making sure that you're happy and healthy yourself, then I think that's a great opportunity for people to do that. I think that's a perfect answer. It ties everything that we've been talking about together. You know, this idea of security that might intersect with age and why people at midlife might be more comfortable, that ability to cultivate secure friendships with other people, not be worried about being abandoned by your friends, and to feel secure and confident in yourself as being single, that you don't necessarily need to have a relationship to feel good about yourself or to be a person of worth. So I think that's all great advice. So thank you for this really fascinating conversation. I'm really looking forward to continuing our discussion and talking about the flip side of all of this, which is when being single really sucks. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? If you have a website, if you're on the socials, where can they go? Yeah, we have an Instagram account at securelab.sfu. We just launched it, so please follow. And we kind of talk a lot about singlehood experiences and also complexities around relationships too, generally. So we have that. We have a website, www.securerecearchlab.com. If you're an academic who wants to hear a little more, bit more, you know, academic nonsense, I'm also on Twitter at Yuthika Girme. So yeah. Well, thank you so much again for joining me. It was a pleasure to have you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>